July is Minority Mental Health Month, and in this episode, I invited my friend Cassandra Dacent to share her story about dealing with debt, depression, suicide, and anxiety. She also sheds light on important issues like what is the black tax? What are the barriers that people of color face when getting mental health care, and what can people do about it? How can people manage their mental health during this crazy time of racial injustice? Listen in for a great show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to The Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy. And I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I have a special guest, someone I've known in the personal finance world for a very long time, Cassandra Dacent. Cassandra is a recognized personal finance consultant, educator, and speaker. Minding your money is what Cassandra Dacent specializes in, and she addresses the financial challenges that Gen Xers and disadvantaged members of society face, and that is her priority. She focuses on how the emotional quotient can have a direct and lasting impact on one's relationship with money, and she successfully communicates to her audiences practical ways on how to improve their financial circumstances. I am so happy to have Cassandra here. She spoke at Lola Retreat last year, which is my Women in Money event. I've known her for years in the personal finance blogging community. So thank you so much for being on the show, Cassandra. Hi, Melanie, and thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure doing anything with you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so excited. It's been a long time. I think we were just talking about that we've kind of been in the same personal finance circle going on seven years. Yeah. It's almost like we go back in the car seats. <laughs> seven years is a long time in our world. Seven years is a long time. I mean, wow, that is longer than a lot of people's relationships. And I'm so glad that we are still connected. And, you know, talking about this kind of previous life as a personal finance blogger, I know we connected over my blog, Dear Debt, and you had a blog, I think, More Than Just Money. And you had paid off your debt and I was still paying off debt. And I was so inspired by you and your story. And so I just wanted to go into that a little bit more and talk about how did your debt affect your mental health and what prompted you to pay it off? So just to give a bit of background quickly, I had amassed over a decade in my 20s, $55,000 Canadian of debt. And I came to the conclusion in 2009 that I needed to do something about it. So I crafted a five-year repayment plan uh, because I was making less than what I owed. Uh, And I actually paid it off in three and a half years. But to touch on the the mental aspect of it, I had a lot of work I needed to do. But from the emotional side of things, it scared me. I had reached a point where I lived in anxiety. I wasn't sleeping well anymore. I realized that I was in such a hole that if I were to lose my job, I could lose my condo, my car, it hit home for me. And it really started to weigh on me. And I, I just felt ill. I don't know how to really explain it. But I felt mentally drawn down. And the pressure was real, you know, and that in a way, it motivated me to to do whatever I needed to do to pay it off. But on the other hand, it was unhealthy, because I had such an aggression towards paying that debt off, because I felt it was such a burden, that it also played against me at the same time, you know, so it it was like a duality of sorts from a mental health perspective, right. And as the debt became less, as I was able to put more towards it, it really widened that gap from a holistic perspective of feeling, okay, I'm pushing myself further away from the financial cliff and that feels good. And then 
I realize I'm like, okay, it, it's like do or die. Like I, I want more of this feeling of, of safety, of peace, of, of freedom, you know, and that's really what helped me to kind of push it into overdrive and, and do it faster. Uh, would I do it the same way again? I don't think so. Just having learned what I've learned over the years since then and what a toll debt repayment takes on you if you don't take periodic breaks or you don't respect how you're feeling emotionally and mentally, you can do yourself a real disservice and you can harm yourself to the point where you can fall back into further debt depending on where you are in your personal life story. Because I had a lot of self-esteem issues that created my debt in the first place. And I had to yeah, I had to reconcile that before I got whole from a financial perspective. So if I hadn't done that work to look in the mirror, so to speak, and acknowledge that my past experiences, even the ex financial experiences of my mother, having grown up with a single parent and her having to hustle, not because it was the invoke thing to do, but because she had to piece together because all her income was minimum wage that really weighed on me too. So I had to reconcile my past in order to be able to really be able to move forward and make better financial decisions. So that also affects your mental health. And that's really something that very few of us, except for you and others that I know, talk about in depth. I appreciate you sharing that story. And I think, you know, it's so important to really talk about the effect that debt has on mental health. And people think it's just about the numbers and you make more than the minimum payment and you paid on the high interest and then you're going to be debt free and that's it. And like you mentioned, there are a lot of emotional issues that people are facing when paying down debt. They're the reasons people get into debt, you know, um, you know, people have credit card debt, maybe they're working on um, soothing certain issues or dealing with things. People are in student loan debt, trying to better their lives, and it's not what they thought. I mean, people are in debt for so many different reasons. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with Dear Debt was really explore this idea that people are in debt for so many different reasons. And we don't need to demonize or shame people, like whether it's, oh, they did the right thing and went to school, or they racked up 20K in credit card debt with a shopping addiction because they're trying to fill a void because, you know, their dad left when they were five or whatever. It's none of our business. And, you know, we just need to treat the person holistically and realize that people are in debt for different reasons. Right. And I think you hit on upon a key point, which is the shame factor. So it's already bad enough when you have your own personal reckoning. And at the time I was working as a commercial credit analyst. So I'm supposed to have my ish together, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and from a corporate perspective, I'm managing multi-million dollar portfolios wonderfully. I'm excellent at it, but my personal life is in shambles. And because I had built up this image of me, successful me, which was not true from a financial perspective, there was that additional level of shame internally that I had to face and deal with and confront and say, you know what? Yeah, I messed up. And I could either stay in, in a zone where I'm just beating down on myself or what resources there are there available to talk me through this journey of debt repayment from an emotional and mental perspective. Because again, that is not really uh, spoken about and woven into personal finance conversations and information that the general public consumes. So then there's the external shame where you've got experts telling you that XYZ is the way you need to go in order to pay this debt off. You can't take vacations. You can't slow down. You've got to be all in like gazelle intensity. And it's just, this is not a framework that's going to work for everyone. You know, life happens during debt payment journey. I got married in the middle of it. I released an album in the middle of it. So I spent money while I'm paying down debt. So I didn't let my life stop, but I also really understood that I needed to heal. You know, I need to heal from many points of view. And it was not just about the numbers, far beyond the numbers, in fact. Yeah, there's so much shame and debt repayment. And it really forces you to deal with a lot of different things, your money mindset, your past, how you're going to deal with your future. And when I was listening to your story before about how you paid off debt and how intense you were, and I just resonated so much because you know that I had that very same intensity and I almost burned out. And similarly, I wouldn't necessarily tell people to do it the way I did it because I did burn out and I did make mistakes. And 
You know, it's so funny that you said it was a do or die situation because actually before Dear Debt, my blog was called Do or Debt because I thought it was a do or die situation. So I was like, this is a do or debt situation. Right. Unfortunately, in internet lingo, it looks like door debt when you read it on a URL. <laughs> so I was kind of like, hmm, I don't know if people are going to really like get my like, this is a do or debt situation. It looks like door debt. So then. I transitioned to Dear Debt, you know, which is writing Dear John letters to debt, writing their breakup letters and really focusing on the emotional aspect of debt. And I was side hustling seven days a week for like five years. And I was so exhausted. It played a part um, in the demise of my relationship, which ended a few years later. I'm not going to lie. Like that was a part of it. Like I worked so much. And, you know, I finally paid it off and it was great. But then like I had used the last of my emergency fund to pay it off. And then six months later, I moved to California and I had a huge tax bill and then it was gone again. And then I was like, wow, like I was just so happy to get to net worth zero. (laughs) You know, like you're in the negative for so long. Zero seems really attractive. And then it's like, I I like dipped into my emergency fund and totally like wiped it out twice in the following year. And, you know, in the years since then, like I was like, oh, I'm going to be so rich after this. And then it's like, I've been tired and I've been self-employed. And then I had, you know, the breakup of that relationship. And it's like, yeah, life happens. And you're either going to pay up front or going to pay later. And I paid later. One way or another. Yeah. So I, I paid later, like, you know, and so I, I think that's really important to kind of consider when you're paying off debt that there is debt fatigue, that life will happen, and that you have to take care of yourself. Like, I know I took a vacation to Spain six months before I paid off my debt. And honestly, that was the trip that recharged me to finally just be like, okay, I can do this for six more months, and then I'm never going to be in this situation again. But if I didn't go on that trip, I probably would have taken another year to pay it off because I was so tired. And so, yeah, I think there's not one size fits all advice. And that I think we need to look at people's lives holistically. We need to look at their families holistically. You know, there are so many different nuances that need to be considered when paying off debt. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. I think we have to always remember that life life is not fluid and we have to account for things that, that shift our focus along the way, um, you know, when I was paying off debt, my stepfather passed away during that time. My mother began her very slow decline into dementia. I also moved to a new country. I was I, I was raised in Trinidad, grew up in Montreal, um, but lived most of my life there and then immigrated to the United States, uh, moved to states from New York to Michigan, got a new job, got a new house. All of this was kind of like happening in that whole time period for the most part. And it's overwhelming. Yes, I may be strong, but we all have our limits, you know? And I remember actually, it hit me like you, but it hit me later. It hit me in 2015. So I had already paid off debt, but then I became, I, I've always been the uh, breadwinner in our home. I've always earned more. And then now, you know, taking care of my mom and my elderly mom and partially from a financial standpoint, there's just pressure. And being away from my my safety net, my network, living in a different country, you think Canada and the U.S. are similar? Really, we're not in a lot of fundamental ways. And I just felt very alone. And it kind of just, it kind of, I was in a dark cloud for about three years from 2015 to 2018. And we'll probably talk about that a little later, but it hit me later, you know, because I, I finally had some time to process everything I had done from 2009 onward, which was a huge accomplishment, huge, but it took a toll. Yeah, it was a huge accomplishment and it took a toll. And it sounds like you were dealing a lot with your family and, you know, to have this history in Trinidad and then Canada and then the United States. I mean, that just sounds like cultural whiplash in a way, you know, dealing with all of these things. And I know last year at Lola Retreat, you were kind of diving into more of this topic of relationships and money and talking about this kind of pressure that you're feeling. And I know you mentioned what is called the black tax. And I'll just be honest, as a white person, I didn't really know what that was. And you really opened my mind about other financial considerations that black people and people of color have to make. 
And I know that is something that you've had to deal with personally. And I'd love for you to elaborate on that for people that might not be familiar with what the black tax is. Also, like what considerations have you had to make as someone that has immigrated from Trinidad to Canada to the United States? And how has that affected your money and mental health? You know, I've actually learned a lot since I gave that presentation with regard to the black tax specifically. So I approached the black tax initially from a point of view of support, you know, from a financial standpoint where you are the child that is either, you know, an immigrant or you've been raised in the United States or Canada and you've, you've risen financially to a point where you can support other family members. And of course, that really does take a toll on you because it drags on your wealth because you now have to disperse money. But I actually learned a lot in terms of what the black tax truly is. And I wanted to really take the time to mention that what I just said is a symptom and is a result of what the black tax is. And the black tax is essentially the financial cost of discrimination against blacks based on anti-black bias. And it's it's either consciously or unconscious. So that is, is, is a much bigger, broader picture of what the black tax really is and how has it affected um, the economic position of blacks for centuries. And we're not just talking, you know, from a point of, okay, slavery ended with the emancipation. Um, slavery took different forms. So slavery didn't end. It just manifested itself in different ways, like the black code or, or other acts like redlining or Jim Crow. So The black tax is really about quantifying how much black Americans that that wealth gap we talked about, how did that even begin? How is it how has it grown? And the cost of the black Americans experience through slavery and beyond. Um, And so Sean Rochester is the author of a book called The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America. And I urge every one of your listeners to listen to him on YouTube. You can pick up his book. And he was also on another podcast, a friend of ours, Jamila Sukrant, Journey Launch. And he gave an excellent, excellent synopsis of what the black tax is. So when I talked about, you know, the supporting family members, that is that is definitely an effect, a trickle down reason of the black tax. But it it is much broader and, and on a much larger scale, how we're affected today. And, you know, so when people say that, oh, well, it happened so long ago, well, it 400 years and this is what we got you have to ask some really deep questions. And from a systemic point of view, you know, again, we can go, this could be an entire show, but I strongly recommend Sean Rochester, The Black Tax, you're going to be educated about what that really means. But coming from a personal point of view, how it's affected me, definitely, I call it now the golden child scenario. That's how I separate the two concepts. And the golden child scenario is someone like me, You could be white, you could be Hispanic, Latinx, it affects everybody across color lines. When you have made it and your family members see you as potentially, you know, the cash cow, the bank account, the support system, we wire money to our family every month without fail. The wire transfer business is a $6 billion business for immigrants because we don't support only ourselves, we support other people in our home nations. Even whites, you know, they're the first to graduate from college and they've got parents who are on, you know, maybe disability or social assistance. And they have now have to turn over a portion of their paycheck to make sure that their family member is okay. So the golden child scenario crosses all color lines. Everyone deals with it and it impacts your ability to build wealth. And especially for blacks, generational, intergenerational wealth. When you feel like you're making six figures or high five figures, but you still are living essentially paycheck to paycheck, we have a problem, you know, discussing it. And a lot of people did come up to me after and really say, I never thought about it in that way, how money really can divide families and and affect and create resentment, you know, because I felt resentment to some degree, because I'm like, well, I know my mom's part, she struggled for a long time to create a sense of financial stability. She never made more than $25,000 Canadian. I blew $25,000 Canadian by the time I was 20. I earned $32,000. So I remember one time she asked to see my paycheck and I'm like, okay. And she looked at it and she was shocked at the amount of money I was making. And it actually created some discord because I was treating her like she was less than because of my stupidity and ignorance as a child, because I was earning great money at a young age. And 
I just couldn't understand, well, why would you settle for 25,000? But with her background and her lack of schooling, that is the best that she could have done. And it took a lot of inner work in me to come to respect that, you know what, that $25,000 created the path for me to be where I am today. And I need to honor that. But you see how money is so difficult to navigate and the feelings that it brings up. So it really is not about dollars and cents when you break it down. Yeah, when you gave that talk, it was just so illuminating for me. And, you know, it's something that's not really talked about in any of the personal finance articles I've read or books I've read, and and maybe they're, they're somewhere, but I really think it's so important to have this cultural context, this idea that many people are not just paying for their own livelihoods. They're supporting family members. They're supporting um, sick elders. You know, they're the ones that are really the glue of the situation. And there's just so much going on there. And that's like been the beautiful thing about Lola Retreat. And now obviously with mental health and wealth is really seeing the level of nuance in these personal finance situations. And I think it's so important that we highlight these stories because they're not in the the mainstream articles. And we really need to realize like, wow, so many people are dealing with this. And I don't know if I have an answer, but I think it's something that at least needs to be talked about. Right. It's through that diversity of people who are now in the community who are able to raise these issues so that their audience can connect and say, wow, okay, you're talking about something that I live day to day. Whereas before you're getting the, the standard cookie cutter, you know, save, invest advice, which I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's just, it cannot even begin to address the nuances and the difficulties that so many families are facing. And again, it comes back to the emotional component and, and, You know, you're dealing with resentment, you're dealing with guilt, you're dealing with fear, you're dealing with that pressure that, oh my God, if I only lose my job, they're depending on me, what's going to happen to them, you know? And for me, that's why I suffer from anxiety. I don't think it's ever something that I will fully conquer. I'm on medications, I'm actually back on it again, because I went through a period with COVID where it's just like, okay, I need something to help level me out, to help me bring back a bit more balance because I was not sleeping my brain was constantly churning. You know, I pay thousands a month for my mother's care. We're at hundreds of dollars US a month in relation to her pension. But you do the math between my mom and my mother-in-law, it's 15 grand a year on paying in support. You know, yeah. if I don't make if I don't make money, she could get kicked out. My mother could be on the street. She wouldn't, obviously, but it's not easy to just take my mom and immigrate her to the U.S., especially now with green cards being frozen. So do you see how the chain of effects can happen with just losing one job, what can happen to somebody? So personal finance needs to be much more encompassing of our realities because no two are the same. Exactly. And I'm so glad you you brought up the topic of medication. And I'm happy for you that you went back on medication because you felt like you needed it. And I'll totally admit, like, I had to call my doctor and get a prescription for Xanax. I mean, that's like, you know, when I'm about to have a panic attack, I take it rarely, but I'm on anti-anxiety medications daily for like daily upkeep to try to just right. you know, stay just safe. Stay, stay level. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the Xanax is like the supercharger, like, okay, you're about to go off the rails and like have a legit panic attack and stop breathing. And I've had to... to have that during this time because there's so much stress right now, you know, with COVID-19, with the pandemic, with the racial injustice, everything. It's it's a lot. And I think if anyone listening, if you feel like medication will help, definitely look into it. I would say if you're even just curious about it, just make an appointment because I know that when I first started with medication, I was in a really, really bad place. And I knew that medication doesn't work until four to eight weeks. Xanax works pretty immediately, but antidepressants particularly. Yes, it it takes longer for the body to really absorb. It takes a while for it to adjust. And I remember thinking, I can't even last four weeks for this to kick in. You know, if if you're feeling like you need help, definitely go see a psychiatrist and see if you can get help. And I originally got Xanax from my primary care physician originally 
for my severe flight anxiety. Like I really <laughs> am a hot mess on flights. <laughs> and then, you know, I just asked her like during the pandemic, I was like, look, I know previously it was for the the flying, but now like things are so crazy. And, you know, she gave me just a small, like a, like a few, because um, I know that a lot of psychiatrists are also, you know, wary of giving out too much. They can be addictive. And so you, you want to be mindful of that. You want to be mindful of any interactions, but being able just to have a, a little bit, a few, so, so, so important. Yeah. I was highly discouraged doing what I did, which was suffer for three years. Yeah. Okay. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, whatever path you choose to go, seek help, seek assistance and seek professionals who really will understand the background of your situation. So it's not only just the mental health issue, it's really all the factors that are coming into play. So for example, me, it's really from a familial standpoint that a lot of my pressures arise, right? I just feel that sense of, I need to shoulder everything because I am the, the, the key link, right? And what happens to me, you know, if something happens to me, I just imagined it that all hell would break loose and that was not necessarily true. But my pride got in the way. I will be the first to admit that I was raised with the strong female black power concept that we don't need medication. We can just power through. Okay. And unfortunately that really sunk me. Um, you know, I ended up having to leave a, prof a profession. I came back to it, but I needed to heal, but it really affected me on many, many levels. And I went to therapy and eventually with my PCP, we, we agreed that we needed to put me on something to just get me back to a place where I could make better decisions, you know, because at that point I was all over the map. Like I wanted to move. I wanted to move back to Canada. I wanted to like, I was just all over because my brain just, I, I really burned out. I shut down and I was in flight mode, flight. All I wanted to do was run away from my problems and that, that you have to be, you have to reach a place where you can begin to face them. So when I went to my PCP in, uh, I think I started in, I think it was March, April. Um, I knew that if I didn't address this now, it was going to snowball. So I learned from the past and that's something really important is like, look back to what happened before. And I never want to be in that place again. I want to still be productive. I still want to contribute to society, but I want to do it in a way where I'm not putting myself at risk, you know? Yeah. So she actually, she actually gave me some Xanax too. Um, that did all of nothing for me. Really? It huh. totally depends. Yeah. It did nothing. It did nothing for me. I'm on Lexapro for my anxiety, right? The sleep, but for the sleep, she gave me Xanax and I had to pop like three pills and it did nothing. Huh, interesting. So yeah, another thing, it affects people differently. Right. So I saw, I'm actually night, Z-Quil puts me to sleep faster than a Xanax. So I've been on Z-Quil ever since. So you do what works for you, but with really supervision and guidance. I can't stress that enough. Like, don't try to solve this on your own. Don't allow people to tell you that you should be strong enough to do this on your own. Don't feel the shame that you have to have help in order to regain your soul. I can't, I can't, I can't say that enough times. Like, you matter. You matter so much. And I want you to get well. And I want you to do what you need to do in order to get well. Whoever's listening to this and they're struggling. Yeah. And I think for so many people, me included, you know, medication has saved people's lives. And I know that for a fact, and I know I've tried meditating and healthy eating and everything. And it's like, when you've done all the stuff you're supposed to, and you still are just like, why can't I get better? It's probably a neurochemical imbalance. And that's, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, if you had a broken leg, you would go to the doctor and get it fixed. If you have a chemical imbalance, it's just a chemical imbalance. I don't know why we have such a stigma around this. It's, it's like if you had a broken foot, a broken arm. This, this is a medical condition. It's a medical condition. Yeah. And, you know, I think I've said this before on the podcast that there's a lot of fear about medication. Like, oh, I'm going to be a zombie. Oh, I'm not going to feel anything. Oh, I'm not going to be creative anymore or whatever. And I like to liken it on the scale of zero to a hundred. So zero is completely catatonic, not able to move in bed, just feeling like I'm already dead. And a hundred, like hysterical crying, kind of manic, just like all over the place, you know, where 
medication kind of helps me stay in the 30 to 70 range. You know, it helps me stay. Yeah. It, it, what we're saying is it's not, it's not a cure-all. It's not going to, to take away your anxiety. It's not like you're never going to feel this again. Anxiety in of itself is not bad. It's when it becomes to the point where it prevents you from, you know, living healthy. It prevents you from functioning normally in society. It's normal to worry. It's just, there's a level where it crosses worry and you start creating scenarios in your mind that are just like, they're not supported based on fact or reality, right? So now you're being driven to do things and make decisions or not make decisions based on things that are not supported by fact. Understand that medication is there to help. As I said, it helps to just, just taper it and, and bring it to a manageable level where you are able to just be more rational with your fears or with your anxiety or with your depression. Because there are days where it's just some days it's just like, am I on this medication or not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <Totally>. Yeah. <laughs> right. But for me, it's been extremely helpful. But definitely start with, you know, your PCP or a psychiatrist that you trust. And there's definitely networks that I know that Melanie has shared um, in detail. So thank you so much. So kind of, you know, diving into this topic that we've been getting into, like, what is your personal history with mental health kind of, you know, aside the money aspect, like, is this something new for you that you've been dealing with just the past few years? Like what's been your mental health journey, if you, if you care to share? So one thing I think this will be the first time I've ever said publicly um, is that I tried to commit suicide when I was 16. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I tried to commit suicide when I was 16. I took a bottle of Tylenol. I think I ingested about 70. Um, my mother came in. I don't remember because I was unconscious. Um, stomach pumped. I'm very fortunate to be among the land of the living. Yes, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, I'm grateful. But I had I had a really difficult emotional experience, you know, dealing with just traumatic events that happened to me as a child for an extended period of time. Growing up in a completely different country, I grew up in white suburbia. Uh, no one really looked like me. And as much as I, again, raised to be strong, it did affect me, you know, being one of the few or the only in my world, in my circle. And also, I really picked up on the fact that my mom and I were not wealthy or, you know, we didn't have a ton of money. My mother provided everything I needed and she tried more. We lived in a, in a good neighborhood. Like, you know, the rule is by the worst, but in the best neighborhood, I was sent to great school. She sacrificed for me, but a single parent who didn't have anyone to really lean on, uh, she leaned on me. So as a young child growing up, I grew up a lot faster than I should have because I was just exposed to the realities of our situation. Like I knew how to write a check very young. I knew what the bills looked like. I knew how much we paid in rent. I knew everything. And my mother always said that if she could have done things differently, she would have. But at the time we just had each other. Right. So of course that made me hyper independent, but it also affected me emotionally. And I just took on a lot of burdens at a really, really young age. And so when I reached a point at 16, I just, you know, things happened that I just, I, I felt I couldn't live anymore. And um, fortunately, the gods thought differently and I'm still here, but I've always had to struggle with worth. I struggled with yeah. self-worth for a really, really long time. So I can say confidently that I know my worth now and I assume it and I demonstrate my worth and I'm truly at one with me as a being, but that took almost four decades to resolve. So I understand people who are, are feeling that they're just still struggling after so many years, you think that, okay, well, why can't I beat this? Why isn't this just done with? It's because until you really confront this, and it's such a scary thing to do. I'm the first to tell people that, you know, looking within and acknowledging pain is really hard to do. Um, and it's a, sometimes it's just a journey that it just doesn't end. It just helps you to evolve and helps you to respond better as you learn more and as you become more mature in who you are, you know. But yeah, the, the depression, anxiety, the self-worth, not anymore. But the depression, uh, as I said, I struggled with that for three years. But then that was really situational because I felt isolated. My support system wasn't in the U.S. Now I have a bigger support system. I've made new friends and, you know, I, I found ways to kind of make up for that. But, you know, like I always say, how do I prepare myself for the eventuality that my mother will pass? Because we are very bonded. 
we have a very, very close relationship. And I know that that day is coming. And I know that if I don't find ways to learn how to grieve healthily, that I'm at risk for falling back into that depression. So I'm aware, I'm very self-aware. So I'm already planning, (laughs) strange to say, but I'm already planning how to mitigate that as much as possible. So that's how it manifests itself in my life. It's still kind of always in my thoughts, at the back of my thoughts, you know, how to prepare for what's next, what, what may bring me down. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. I know that was not easy. And I know that any time that there's a suicide attempt, that there's so much going on and so much pain. And I I know I've said this on the podcast before that a lot of people don't necessarily want to die. They just want the pain to stop. Exactly. And they feel like they don't know any other ways for it to stop. And yeah, as you mentioned, when you do the inner work to really try to heal and stop feeling that way, it is so incredibly painful but you can get out of it stronger. And like you said, kind of have those cues of like, oh, this is something that sets me off or this is something that triggers me. And I think it's really smart that you're preparing now because as you said, it's unfortunately an eventuality that this will happen and kind of a type of depression, but it's specific, but you don't want that to turn into kind of a long-term depression spell and, you know, get back to that place where you were. And like, I know I'm sure that you felt this way. And, you know, I felt similarly when I was 16. I didn't exactly have an attempt, but I was suicidal when I was 16. For me now that I'm in a different place, it's so frightening to realize that my mind even went there. And when you think like my mind actually went there and was in such a horrible place and you just know that the possibility of that coming back could happen and it so frightened me. Yeah. And I felt even once and could possibly feel again is so scary. It's scary. It is scary. And you know, the thing is, is that from the outside, as a 16 year old, I had it, I had it golden. You know, I was um, like the star of our music department. I was graduating like in the 90s in all my classes. Like I was like, you know, the superstar. And you know, that doesn't mean anything. Um, I was hurting, deeply hurting. And like you said, I just felt like in order to make it end, because nobody understood me. But again, I'm not one to talk. I'm pretty introverted in the sense that, again, people see me as the strong one. I don't want to lean on them because perception is, you know, everything, so to speak, right? Um, And what would they say about me? Again, the judgment or the shame. So I had to reconcile all of that in order to feel better and be better and choose to act better. So it was a very long process. And for for most of my 20s, I, I just repressed it. I pretended it never happened. Wow. I did not even acknowledge it. Oh, that is so interesting. And that actually kind of ties into another question that I have that what are the barriers that people of color face when trying to manage mental health? I know a previous guest, Sinclair Caesar, kind of said in the black community, we don't talk about our issues, we're supposed to be strong. And that prevents a lot of people for seeking help. And I would just love, you know, to get your thoughts on like, what are the barriers for people of color? Obviously, you can't speak for everyone to getting mental health uh, resources. Right. So I think a lot of it is economic. A large portion of people in the Black community and, you know, Latinx, um, Asians, to some degree as well, work in low-wage earning jobs, okay? So what does that do? It is either they are still employed, but they don't have health care. They are still employed. They do have a minimal amount of health care, which is not the full cafeteria-style benefits package where you can get money to go see a psychiatrist and other psychologist because that's extra. You know, people who think, okay, well, healthcare encompasses everything. It does not. It really depends on the, the corporation's plan, right? And then those who are working who just don't have healthcare at all. And then there's those who are unemployed because now let's take COVID. Let's throw COVID onto the plate because you have 30 million plus people who are unemployed. The majority of those 30 million people are of color. Okay, because they're working in tourism, retail, food, 
major sectors that are disproportionately affected by COVID. You're getting $2,400-ish, you know, with the $600 a week benefit plus whatever the state gives you. In Florida, the maximum you make it for state benefit is $275, and you have to jump through hoops to get it, oh. okay? Right? So we're set up to not have access. We're set up to not have be able to get to those resources in the first place, right? Even with basic health care. This is a situation where mental health should be just as important for getting your yearly checkup that's paid for free, that's covered for free, yeah. where you don't need health insurance to get it. So until that happens, you will not see a higher number of Blacks or, or Brown population going and seeking help. So that's on top of what your previous guest said, that, of course, from a cultural perspective, we're, we're now coming in slowly adopting a mindset that mental health is wealth. Mental health is just as important as physical health, you know, so, but we're a long ways to go. And it's the younger generations that if we educate them properly, you'll see increases and in advancements in that. But the older generation, you're not going to really change the majority of their minds. That's just the way they were brought up. That's the way that their mindset and they're sticking to it. You don't talk about your problems, you know. But really, this is from an economic and systemic point of view. Um, I look at it that majority of us don't have access, simply put, or we can't afford it. Do you want to pay your rent or do you want to go talk for an hour at, at, a, at a therapist? In their mind, they're like, hell, rent. That will reduce my stress more than, you know, it's just really the lens that they look at it as well. So there's many, many factors, but economic disparity is huge from a racial perspective. Yeah, I totally agree with you and think that having that access and having that economic disparity, yeah, it totally shuts off a part of access. And yeah, if you're going to, you know, have to choose between paying your rent and talking to someone for an hour, of course, you're going to choose your rent because you need a place to live and talking to someone for an hour, even if it is life changing in a way, it is it's extra, you know, you don't need it. It's a, it's a luxury. Yeah. For us, it's a luxury. It's completely know? a luxury. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, beyond that, and then on top of economics is representation. Yes. So how many people who look like us are in this space? So there are more, but really from the medical field, there are not many people of color who are practicing psychiatrists or psychologists. And are there any in your immediate neighborhood? Because I will say, I, I don't have stats to prove it, but I would say we are less inclined to do Zoom and virtual. We, as a culture, we tend to connect more in person. So when you don't have someone in your immediate neighborhood that you feel that you can trust and go to and who will understand the cultural significance and baggage that you're bringing on top of the mental health issues, you are less likely to go and seek help, period. Definitely. I think percentage-wise, yeah, there are a lot fewer people of color, psychiatrists and therapists, but, you know, I have been following some accounts of people that are doing that work to change that. You can check out the Mental Health and Wealth Instagram where I have tagged some resources for Black and Brown communities because, yeah, I think it is super important that people see professionals who look like them who have a frame of reference and understanding for what they're going through and I think there's nothing wrong with that and that's should be encouraged absolutely um it's you know empathy is important and regardless of what race you are obviously as a practitioner you need to be empathetic there's just a camaraderie and an understanding when if I talk about my, you know, my Trini mother and how she gets on sometimes. And, you know, somebody culturally could understand that it just, it would make me feel easier to share more. So there really is about connection, about choosing your service provider in terms of your mental health. That is so, so important. Sometimes you'll go through two, three, four, maybe five people, but don't give up because you will be able to find someone that you can place your trust because this is a relation based on trust. Yes. 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 I love that. So you also mentioned, you know, there's so many people that are unemployed or dealing with this pandemic. I know that you have been vocal about kind of a shift in your situation. Your husband works in the live music industry, which unfortunately is at a halt right now. And, you know, that has obviously changed so many people's financial situations literally overnight. How has COVID-19 affected the way you manage your money as well as your mental health? 
So as you mentioned, uh, my husband is an audio engineer and he tours a lot with a lot of musicians, a lot of um, bands. And so, of course, that is completely devastated right now. We don't know when that is coming back. Honestly, we're looking at maybe second, third quarter, 2021, realistically, because, you know, we're thinking vaccine, then you need another wave and all that stuff. What has that done for us is that I've been hoarding cash, plain and simple. Um, I've been stacking that cash, stacking the Benjamins. Yep. Um, I I will disclose we're very, very fortunate in that I'm still earning income. My income hasn't been affected. I had to negotiate some pay cuts, you know, as a result. But we've been living below our means for a really long time. So with my income, we're okay. Doesn't mean that it's it's fun because it's stressful, right? Because I still have the same amount of expenses for the most part. They haven't stopped my mom, my mother-in-law, my stepson in Trinidad, you know. Our expenses are fairly high, but what we've been doing is basically banking whatever's left over. We still try to support, you know, local as well, you know, local businesses, because I know that we need to pump money into the economy however we can, because if not, then so many families are affected and we won't make it through, you know? So I've always thought not only micro, I'm always a macro thinker about my actions and and my dollars, how I spend it. So it took my husband three months until last week to get his first unemployment check. Three months. Oh my gosh, this is not sustainable. Yeah, we had to press all the way to the governor's office to get action. Like it was ridiculous. So I can't even imagine the amount of people in my state, let alone the country, if they have to wait for three months and they desperately need the money. It's it's just mind boggling, you know? So yeah, he just got his first check last two weeks ago. No, last week. I'm thinking if we really needed that money, where would we be? You know, so I am fortunate, but I am my anxiety. That's part of the reason why I went to the doctor. You know, when my husband's income just completely, you know, there, there goes our plans. There goes our goals for this year. That's fine. We're still alive. We're good. But again, now I'm thinking like, what if I lose my job? If I lose my job? Oh, okay. Yes, we have a healthy emergency fund, we can ride for at least probably eight to 10 months. Okay. But again, you know, that was started a little hamster. My best friend calls my brain a little hamster and the hamster's on the wheel and it's <laughs> going and it, yeah, the hamster's creating all sorts of scenarios. And that's when I, I knew that we need to slow the hamster down. Mm-hmm. So slow it on down. Yes. <laughs> yes. Slow the hamster down. So that's exactly what I did. But yeah, COVID really did it affected me on a emotional level, not being able to see my mom. Oh, I know. It's been so hard for so many people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been almost, well, because I had planned to visit her in March. The last time I'd seen her was November before Thanksgiving. And so I haven't seen her. We've done FaceTimes. We talk every night on the phone, but there's nothing like a hug. There's nothing like I love you in person. There's nothing like that physical connection and touch. And unfortunately, it has adversely affected her level of dementia. Because it is proven that if you do not have routine, you don't have structure, you don't have people that you see consistently, those who do suffer from dementia, my mother has Lewy body dementia, it will, it can hasten it, right? So now she has no sense of time. She doesn't know what day it is. And this, this happened in th- literally what, like not long before COVID hit, like that descent, She's living in like, she's like living in the past. She's not really aware of the current presence. She's still aware of me and my husband and my dog, Riley. So that's that constant because we call her every night, like at 8.30 on the clock. So she still has a certain routine. So she knows it's us, but it's hard for me to see that happen and not be able to be there for her. Um, It's affected me a lot. And that's part of the anxiety issue that I'm dealing with. Then there's our stepson, my, my husband's son. He's 12. We haven't seen him in a long time. Trinidad is also shut its borders and, you know, same deal. We're, we're not able to see him grow up in the way that we would like and impart on him what we would want him to feel from us in, in that physical way. So a lot of families are struggling. A lot of families are hurting and it's just not an easy time at all. This is such a difficult time for so many people. And I really appreciate you sharing your story because you're absolutely not alone. You know, there are so many people that are suddenly 
they're the only income provider for their family, which is incredibly stressful for anyone, pandemic or not. But now we have a pandemic. Now it looks like we're definitely heading towards a huge recession, potentially worse than the Great Recession, which is really frightening. And there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And, you know, there's a, a lot of reasons to be anxious and to be scared. And I think that's, that's valid. But yes, we do need to kind of contain the hamster wheel, so to speak, so that we can just, we can, you know, enjoy the slow walk of the hamster and try to use it to our advantage of like, okay, how can I do something to make this better and not let it derail you so much. So I appreciate you you sharing so much of your mental health story and your money journey. I think this has been such a wonderful interview and you are so lovely. And I wanted to end on a fun note. So I know that you are a singer. Yes. And I know that music has such a wonderful effect on your mental health. I'm speaking personally, but I bet for, for many people, music has a wonderful effect on your mental health. And I was wondering if you could sing a little something for our audience, whatever you feel comfortable with. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I'll sing a verse in like the chorus of a song that I wrote over a decade ago, and it's on my first album called The Road to Rebellion, but the song's called Change. And the song, is actually, yeah, the song is actually, it talks very much about what is going on in the world today. That was 11 years ago and it's still just as relevant and just as poignant. So um, I'll just start, I'm acapella. I don't have any musicians with me, but we'll just wing this. Yeah. <laughs> so. At this final hour, the time has come to take your place. You and destiny are set to me. Face to face, oh yeah, God is watching, God is waiting, patiently waiting for you to rise, for the world to see that one mere soul can pave the way for change, time for change. God, I'm like crying over here because <laughs> that was so incredible, number one. And number two, one of the things I absolutely miss the most is live performance. And I just feel like I was getting my first live performance <laughs> in, in the pandemic. And I was like, oh, my God, this is my private little concert. And I hope for the, for the, for the listeners you can enjoy this beautiful little concert that was so amazing. You have an incredible voice and an incredible talent, by the way. I'm sure you've been told that, but I just want to reaffirm that. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a bit rough, but I'm actually working on some new material to record hopefully later this year. So I'm trying to warm up the voice. It's been a minute since I haven't really done a live performance, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, that was really incredible for me kind of putting you on the spot and being like, hey, uh, can you, sing <laughs> can you say something <laughs> right now? So really, really wonderful job. So thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to follow up with you? Sure. So if you are a social media uh, person, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Cassandra Dacent. If you're on Facebook, I have the Minding Your Money uh, with Cassandra Dacent page, and that's the handle at Minding Your Money KD. And then there's my website, CassandraDacent.com, where you can access all the social media. Um, you can find music. Uh, that I've recorded in blog post and all things me. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me and you're doing great work. So I'm happy to support. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the mental health and wealth show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mental health and wealth show at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.